Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Since the beginning, when we learned of the wildfires in Lahaina, on the west side of Maui, we have seen the failure of response coupled with the radical desire to not be honest about its origins. This wildfire started with sparks from a power line, and firefighters believed that they were put out And then the fire reignited, and then the fire spread. Hurricane Dora, which was coming through the Pacific, added winds, which allowed the fire to grow. Kids were not in school that day. Schools, for whatever reason, were closed. Parents went to work. When the fires hit, the sirens were not sounded. Some said, well, you don't hit the sirens because that's for tsunamis moving people to higher ground. The fire was at higher ground. That's not where you wanted people to go. But sirens were utilized for wildfires, just not in this case. We then learned that the director of emergency management in Maui had no experience in emergency management, beat out 40 other people for the job. 40 other people for the job. We asked the questions about why this guy got hired, why there was no no one there with a skill set who was in charge. Then we learned that one of the people who used to run water, right, water planning in the state, We learned that they believe that water should be delivered based on equity. And that it is very possible that water was not given to firefighters for five hours because, well, is this the place where we want to put out the fires first? Hmm. How will these fires affect people based on color or other things? We started learning and started seeing that the response was problematic. And as soon as we saw that the response was problematic, we saw that people like Michael Mann, the, in my view, disgraced climate guy who wrote the hockey stick graph, created that for uh, the movie An Inconvenient Truth with Al Gore. They put him in front of the cameras with people like Andrea Mitchell to explain how this was climate change. Agile moment. So good to see you again, Michael Mann. Let's start with Tropical Storm Hillary. This is a first. Why is this storm so notable for California? And what's it say about what lies ahead? Yeah, thanks, Andrea. It's good to be with you. And the governor laid it out actually pretty clearly. Um, You know, this is climate change. We're seeing it now in all of its forms in, you know, the wildfires in Canada, what happened in Maui, uh, the flooding rains that we're now seeing in California. Um, You see greater extremes at both ends of the spectrum. The tropical storm in California that has uh, created flooding in, in Vegas and some other areas 
The, the, even even MSNBC, first tropical storm in Southern California in 84 years. So that can't be climate change if it happened 84 years ago. Was it all those escalades just idling on, on Name Your Highway that caused the global warming? They are exposing their own lie. When uh, uh, Andrea Mitchell says this is a first, no, it wasn't. That's nonsense. That's not reporting. That She's not a news person. She's lying to her audience. But you had multiple people pushing this idea that it couldn't have been somebody at fault. No, 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 no. It was all climate change. Or as the governor, Josh Green, wanted to put it, uh, really, what, what, what happens here is that uh, the climate change has amplified the cost of human error. So just to be clear, when you're talking about global warming, are you saying that climate change amplified the cost of human error? Yes, it did. Uh, there's always going to be incredible things that people do to save lives from the firefighters, from citizens, and there's always going to be Decisions that are made that I'm sure aren't perfect in them. That's right. There are decisions made that aren't perfect. Like this one here, Governor Green, to go on TV and say this. Obscene. To say the least. How did Herman Andaya, who is leading emergency management, get hired? And why do you have people who believe that we should discuss whether or not we put out fires based on equity? But nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, has been more what are we looking at than Joe Biden and his almost insane response to this this fire going back to the original statement when he's asked by reporters for any comment on the rising death toll in Maui his answer was no no comment he wouldn't talk about what was happening in Hawaii. Then, last week, he was asked to comment on his Hawaii trip. Can you tell us about your Hawaii trip, sir? No, not now. I'm going to be leaving. I'll be there on Monday. Why is it important that you know? He wouldn't answer. He would not answer about his Hawaii trip. Well, he did go to Hawaii. While he was on vacation there uh, in, in the West, he's vacationing at Tom Steyer's house. Tom Steyer's a billionaire. Uh, all about the Green Movement. The guy ran for president, if you remember. He is staying with one of these Green New Deal freaks because if you really believe that human existence is the problem, I, I don't know what else to call you. I think freak is the nicest I can do. He's staying at his house. Don't, don't look now, but, but uh, Justice Clarence Thomas is hanging out with a friend he has had for 30 years. That, oh, that's the end of days. But Joe Biden hanging out with uh, Tom Steyer, totally normal. Good on you. Can't comment on his Hawaii trip. Then Joe Biden gets to Hawaii. 
And Joe Biden, while in Hawaii, takes it upon himself to say, when they tell you I'm old and infirm and incapable, when they tell you I am absolutely disconnected from the voter, and when they tell you I lie, believe them. I don't want to compare difficulties, but we have a little sense, Jill and I, what it's like to lose a home. Years ago, now 15 years ago, I was in Washington doing Meet the Press. It was a sunny Sunday, and lightning struck at home on a little lake that's outside of our home, not a lake, a big pond, and hit a wire and came up underneath our home into the heating ducts, the air conditioning duct. To make a long story short, I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, (laughs) and my cat. But all kidding aside. Thank goodness we've put all the kidding aside. Guys, that is the audio that makes you say Joe Biden can be beat by nearly any Republican in the field. And that is the audio that Democrats will use to say, we really do have to replace him, don't we? You cannot be more awful, more hateful, more despicable than Joe Biden in those 45 to 50 seconds. First, the fire that started in his house 15 years ago was contained to the kitchen. It was put out in 20 minutes. His life was never in danger. He told you he was watching TV or he was doing TV. He was on Meet the Press. How in the world was he watching the firefighters? He talks about how he watched the firefighters. He wasn't watching the firefighters. Everything about Joe Biden is a lie. Everything he says. I mean, the guy is known for his plagiarism. Just ask Neil Kinnock. Everything is a fraud. Everything with this guy is a lie. He can't remember one thing to the next. He makes it up. And in this situation, he insulted the people of Hawaii in a way that I cannot fully comprehend. And then, and then, as they're at an event to honor those who have lost their lives, he fell asleep because he's an old man. My name is Tony Katz, and I'm an ageist, and I am here to tell you that sometimes you're too old to be president, and Joe Biden is too old to be president. Now, the ageism conversation cuts both ways, and I've had people email me about this. Tony, you keep talking about Joe Biden at 80, but Trump's at 77. Two things to note. Number one, yes, and someone should be concerned about Trump's age. And number two, Trump at 77 is clearly cogent, and and Biden at 80 is clearly not. Clearly. Because if we're all of a sudden worried about Trump's age, why are we indicting a 77-year-old? Come on, America! See how that works? Happy to have done it. Biden's gross... Gross commentary has not been received well by the people in Maui.
And then, you know, as far as um, building uh, a better community or better homes than what we have, I unfortunately didn't like that um, because only because um, like for our Kapuna and the Lahaina family and for a lot of people that had lost what they had lost, um, there's no replacing that. There's no better. There's no new. There's no better than that, you know. Um, and, you know, forgive me if I might have misunderstood him, but, yeah, that, that, it, that didn't sit very well with my heart when he said that, yeah. You did not misunderstand the Build Back Better lines of Joe Biden. You understand well that this is just some perfunctory stop and that he, his, his level of caring is near nothing. And what he has done is damaged himself in a way that he cannot recover in the eyes of the American people. That should have been the case after he let Americans die in Afghanistan, never mind those he left to die in Afghanistan. But my goodness gracious, you can't do worse than Joe Biden did. Yet he will have defenders... Jim Messina ran uh, the the campaign for Barack Obama, and here is Bill Hemmer asking him, how do you answer this? And watch Messina try. You know, Jim, I don't know how many times a politician comes to you and looks for advice on how they should relate to people, but when, when politicians try and assimilate and relate like that and it fails because it's not real, it just flops. I'm not sure we're going to agree on this one, Bill. I think his empathy, his stories, his way he connects with voters are why he won the 2020 presidential election. It's why he's going to win again next time. He he has empathy and a connection with voters that press and D.C. pundits like me don't fully give him enough credit for. And I think this kind of thing is the way your neighbor would talk to you. And it's why people like him. Uh, Jim, this was, a, with all due respect, it was a kitchen fire that was put out within 20 minutes. And he's standing there in absolute devastation where the people around him, if they are alive, they have lost everything. Look, I think it's how he connects with people. I think it's his way of connecting and telling a personal story. I've been with him on the ground where he does this and people connect with it. I, I just, you know, I don't I don't think we agree here. OK. What do you agree with? Forget Jim Messina bought and paid for. What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you agree with? What I agree with is that Joe Biden is too old to even know what he said, too infirm to even know what he said. He's not okay, and if his wife actually cared about him, she'd make the pain stop. If the Democratic Party actually cared about the country, they'd make the pain stop. But if they're going to put him out there, I'm going to talk about him. If Hunter Biden is going to keep telling me he's innocent, I'm going to keep discussing what a corrupt uh, guy he is and how he was living in the White House when cocaine was found in the White House. And I don't need to be able to do that much math to say, I think it was Hunter's coke. Joe Biden hurt himself in this Hawaii trip. The the unforced error, the self-inflicted wound that doesn't go away. And I believe is causing panic throughout the political left. Sure, the press doesn't want to cover it. 
and the press will try and bury it. And don't worry, tomorrow there'll be some other story, maybe I already found it, that they try and cover with. But some things stick with the voters. Joe Biden has no popularity. Joe Biden can be beat, I think, by almost any Republican candidate. That's an opportunity for the Republicans. And now they got to make the decisions. I'm Tony Katz. Which schools are mandating vaccines these days? Good morning, Stuart. Well, according to a anti-mandate group, No College Mandates, about 60 schools in the U.S. have a vaccine mandate for their students. One of those schools is a state university in New Jersey, Rutgers, and they are getting some blowback to their mandate. That Good. There's a reason I didn't go to Rutgers. And, uh, and all these years later, I, I was finally proven right. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, 833 got Tony, 833-468-8669. As we have seen, something comes out about Hunter Biden, you have an indictment of Trump. Something comes out about Joe Biden, you have an indictment of Trump. And now, and now, on the day after, we have Joe Biden insulting the people of Hawaii and pretending that a fire in his kitchen is the same as an entire town being destroyed and possibly hundreds of children burned to death. And he joked. Biden joked. We learn that Morris Brown College will now require all students and employees to wear face masks. I I didn't need Alex Jones to tell me. We were already discussing this. We already saw the fear-mongering a couple weeks ago. We were so far ahead of this because we pay attention. It's not that we're smarter. It's that we're more honest. We see what's happening, and we discuss it honestly. Oh, we have uh, new cases of COVID. Oh, it's not as bad as the other one, but oh, they're really, really getting up there. Oh, a huge amount of cases. Anybody dying? Oh, the hospitals. Oh, the hospital. A lot, a lot happening in the hospital. Anybody dying? Well, you know, the COVID cases are up. Oh, so that's a no. Yet we have a university that's now going to require masks just for two weeks. They're only 14 days to flatten the curve. We've come so far. Coming so far. Never mind that masks don't stop COVID. They have never stopped COVID. Anyone who says otherwise is lying. Uh, the question before America is, you falling for this? You going to do this? Of course, of course, this is the election variant, as it's been described. We have an election coming. Let us make sure we do everything possible to have mail-in voting. Let's build the fear. I don't argue with people who want to wear masks. You live your life. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you what to do. You want me to wear a mask? No. And since, since we know that masks don't stop COVID, all mask mandates are madness, and you have really scared little children running things. Your employer wants a mask mandate. Your employer is a child. I would say I will say the same. This is madness. And we're seeing it play out. And the question is, how will people respond to it? Will they wear them? Will they not? Will it change how they vote? 
And is it all to just steal an election, which a lot of people are going to say yes to? I'm Tony Katz. I was flipping through uh, X Twitter. Can we still just call Twitter? Can we, can we be done? Can we, please? It made me so much happier. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Find everything. TonyKatz.com. And you can be a supporter there. Would greatly appreciate it. And came across this tweet from Lance uh, Lambert. And I, and I follow Lance and his real estate work over at, at Forbes. And he posted this 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 chart uh, from uh, the Mortgage Bankers Association, and they expect the thirty-year fixed mortgage rate to average six point two percent in the fourth quarter of twenty twenty-three, five percent in the fourth quarter of twenty twenty-four, and four point six percent in the fourth quarter of twenty twenty-five. So that would be two years from now, fourth quarter of 2025. Uh, uh, we're really in, you know, in the third quarter now. And I wrote back, man, that's rosy. Like that's, that is a crazy amount of rosy. Never mind 4.6 in the fourth quarter of 2025, 6.2% in the fourth quarter when we're looking right now at seven and a half. Lance Lambert joins me right now. He is the real estate editor for Fortune Magazine. Fortune uh, Magazine is where you can follow him. News Lambert on the X Twitter app. Um, uh, I, I follow your, your work, man. It's the first time we've had to talk, and I greatly appreciate it. Uh, I looked at those banker numbers, and I was like, you are you are just peaches, man. You are like all sorts of glass half full, things looking great. And then you put out the data that shows that we're at, at like 7.5% on, on a 30-year fix, 7.49. We're going to go from 7.49 to a percent less in the next three months. How do they come to that number? Yeah, so where we have been this whole cycle is that mortgage rate forecasters have really struggled. Uh, You know, back in 2021, as we were moving into 2022, uh, as the pandemic housing boom was raging along, we were still at 3% mortgage rates, and inflation had already started to peak its ugly head. The mortgage rate forecasters thought we would stay in the high threes for 2022. And uh, by the time, you know, we were spring 2022, it was off to the races for mortgage rates. And by the end of 2022, we had kind of gotten up to that seven handle, came down a little bit into early this year. And now here we are at a 22 year high. And so a lot of the models still think that mortgage rates are going to come down. And, you know, as inflation continues to decelerate, that, uh, you know, mortgage rates could come down as the spread between the 30-year and the 10-year kind of could narrow. Uh, but we're not really seeing it. And mortgage rates have still been much higher 
than the forecasters have expected. And I, I think with those forecasts, I've been taking them with a grain of salt at this point, given that the market reality has been so different than what the models have expected. So when you take a look, you who does this for a living, like this is the only thing you do. You're not, you're not even allowed to see a movie. This is all you do. <laughs> you take a look at that, that, the mortgage banker forecast and you look at that and go, huh, that's possible. Or you look at that and go, huh, they're drunk. I think it's a little bit of uh, I, I think it's a little low. Um, now maybe we end up getting there, but a part of that is the fact that the market, financial markets have stayed so tight, and that the the jobs the job market has also stayed tight. So there's not like this quick lever that's going to bring things down in terms of the financial markets, unless unemployment were to start to move up and financial conditions loosen, then mortgage rates probably would start to fall quicker. But if you look at a lot of the economic data, a lot of the sectors have stayed fairly strong. And so there's some indication that labor could stay stronger longer than expected. And even in some of the interest rate sensitive segments of the economy, even housing and autos, where there's a big affordability hit, but at the same time, the car makers and the home builders are not necessarily taking that hit because they've had huge margins. And so they can make smaller affordability adjustments to meet the market without having to cut jobs. And so that's kind of put us in this place where the jobs market is tight and the financial markets are tight, and thus mortgage rates are staying high. Talking to Lance Lambert of Fortune Magazine, the real estate editor at Fortune. Follow him on the Twitter X app at News Lambert. It's an interesting conversation about bringing up cars and bringing up the opportunities uh, that that they have. And you, you talk about the, the labor market being tight. Talk to me about how that connects to a housing market, because in, in going through some of the things that that you've been posting, uh, you you tweet or or, or uh, share a quote uh, from uh, Lisa. Uh, Sturdivant, who is uh, chief economist at Bright MLS, uh, we're likely to see home prices dip in some markets. You even shared where some of those house prices are changing. Uh, I'm in the Indianapolis area, and what we see is not so much home prices changing, although you could see a little bit of downward pressure. What you see is the total lack of inventory. Mm -hmm. So where are you seeing the house pricing uh, changes happening? And is there still a lack of inventory issue around the country, or is it just pockets like Indianapolis? Well, if you zoom out, inventory across the country is still very low. And in markets like Indy and Columbus and some of these Midwestern markets, it's really gotten tight because what you have is relative affordability. And so while you've taken this huge affordability hit, you're still not that bad of a deal on a relative basis to some of these other markets. And what we saw last year in the second half when we were passing through the seasonally softer window for housing is that the markets out west and some of the overheated markets in the southwest were the places where prices came down some because inventory finally started to build as buyers pulled back. And that was just because the mortgage rate shock, on top of the fact that they've had a decade huge run up in house prices in those western markets, just put it in a place where it was so deteriorated that it needed to pull back just a little. 
And so now as we move back into that seasonally soft period, it's very possible that the places like Austin, Boise, some of the places that, you know, got that Zoomtown effect, that there could be some more give up there. But when I look at the numbers for markets like Cincinnati and Louisville and Columbus and Indy, that pocket you're talking about, inventory is still very low. And I'm not really seeing it in the price data in terms of the likelihood of falling right now. Um, in, in fact, this spring, those markets were fairly hot and posted some of the biggest price gains in the whole country. So now we take a look back at the, the, the numbers that got put out by the Mortgage Bankers Association, where they see things being 4.6% in quarter four of 2025. Yet I can point to economists, Lance, who will tell you they don't see inflation dropping with any level of, of severity past where we are right now. There's nothing that says so. And certainly politically, one can look to different parties winning as to whether or not there'll be more spending and wh- who's going to keep the Senate or take over the Senate. And same thing with the House of Representatives as we go into this election year. So... Um, how do uh, the the people who are, let's say, building houses and those of us maybe looking to buy a house, do we take this uh, number and say, well, good? Do we bake this into other plans? How does the market, I should say, maybe that's as a more generalized term, how does the market take these numbers or uh, do they absorb them and start utilizing them or are they brushing them off as a flight of fancy? Yeah, if I was a buyer or seller, I would take it all with a grain of salt because I would look at their track record of some of the forecasters, especially for mortgage rates, and they've just missed so much. Last year, they thought mortgage rates would be significantly lower. They thought this year we would have already went down. And, you know, for buyers who bought last year, a lot of them buying into the, you know, higher fives or into the low sixes thought that this year they would be able to already refinance down as inflation kind of decelerated. But it's the opposite. If those buyers had actually uh, waited, they would have higher rates now. And there isn't a window to refinance right now. Rates have just stayed high. And inflation, while it's decelerated, there's still some stickiness there. Lance uh, Lambert, look, I appreciate you, you, you taking the, the time. Uh, I, I would ask you, um, as, as you do this, this, this work and, and you are the real estate editor at, at Fortune Magazine, you note that these numbers right now, 7.49, this is a 22-year high. Historically, the interest rates people are paying for homes are kind of midline right when 2.99 that's the insane low oh when my parents mm-hmm. bought a house in jersey in the early 70s i think that was somewhere between 9 and 13% and that happened often but since we have gotten so addicted to the cheap money and now we're having to pay for the money what are you seeing in the real estate world in terms of ripple effects, whether that be on the investment side, whether that be in the first-time homeowner uh, side? Where is where is the issue or the problem that you're seeing that maybe other people aren't talking about and should be? Yeah, so with autos and housing, they're very similar for both. And the, the fact that while interest rates now – have reached a level that is historically normal. 
the affordability side is deteriorated into the very upper bounds of history for both autos and housing right now. And that's because you have to take into account not just rates, but also prices, which have just ripped higher during the pandemic, during those low interest rate periods, and then also incomes. And so when you take into account incomes, prices, and rates, housing affordability as of today, when we're speaking, is at the highest point in 30 years and is actually above the housing bubble's peak in 2006. Now, on the other side of that, you know, we don't necessarily have all of those bad loans, a lot of inventory, and that mechanism down on price, but we do have this very strained affordability. And so for autos and housing, strained affordability is going to be the story for a while. And so wherever that strained affordability has an impact, that's where you will see the economic deterioration. And I'll give you an example. Refi is dead. There, it's down 90% from its uh, pandemic period. There's just not a lot of refis happening, and it's not going to happen for a while because affordability is here. Now, on the other side of it, builders built up these huge margins during the pandemic because they were pretty much able to charge whatever they wanted because there was seemingly unlimited demand. And so what they've been able to do is use those profits to create affordability adjustments like mortgage rate buy-downs or money at close that are able to bring buyers into the market. So the story right now is just deteriorated affordability for housing and auto. And, you know, there's not really a light in the tunnel, at least in the next 12 months. Not if there's going to be a continued credit crunch and a push uh, from banks to say you can only borrow money if you meet these requirements and the requirements get higher and higher and and, and higher for sure. Uh, Lance Lambert of Fortune Magazine, real estate editor of, of Fortune Magazine, News Lambert on the X Twitter app. Be sure to check him out there. I appreciate you taking the time. There is more to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So I've been having a back and forth with Dave Weigel, who I disagree with politically, but is a nice enough dude over at the the Washington Post. And uh, even when he was getting hammered by uh, fellow uh, members over there at the Post, I was like, dude, just just stay strong, man. Um, It was about whether or not uh, Joe Biden's first comment about the Maui wildfires was no comment. And it's not. It's certainly something he said, and certainly people ran with it, but just for the sake of of clarity, this was in Utah. I'm actually putting it out on social media right now. This is what Biden said. Um, While he was in Utah, this was... uh, um, let me let me see if I can uh, grab this here. Let me see if I can give give this to you. Mayor Mendehall, thank you for uh, the passport into the city. I appreciate that opportunity. And Governor Spencer Cox, thank you for your hospitality, but much more importantly, thank you for taking care of our veterans and uh, for bringing along your beautiful family. And uh, by the way, you know. Uh, Years ago, this is, I'd lived here, but years ago, when John Kerry was the nominee for, the, uh, for president of the Democratic Party, 
Yeah, but nobody wants to hear about you as, as vice president. They want to hear about you talking about Hawaii. Request for help and survivor. Thank you very, very much. And look, before I begin, I want to say a word about the devastating wildfires that have claimed at least 36 lives in Maui and Hawaii. I, uh, we have just approved a major disaster declaration for Hawaii, which will get aid into the hands of the people desperate and desperately needing help now. They've lost, uh, anyone who's lost a loved one whose home has been damaged or destroyed is going to get help immediately. And I've directed that we surge support to these brave firefighters and first responders and emergency personnel working around the clock there, risking their lives. I just got off the phone before I got here for a long conversation with Governor Josh Green this morning. Let him know I'm going to make sure the state has everything it needs from the federal government to recover. The FEMA Administrator Griswell will be in Miami tomorrow, in Maui tomorrow, and I've directed her to uh, streamline any process with requests for help. So that is what the man said in Utah. Always, always, always clarity. Because I was doing this back and forth, and like the first comment I saw was some wrote tweet from his his uh, his Twitter feed, which you know he doesn't write. We already know Crinjon Pierre is doing that, and that doesn't count. The first comment was no comment. These were his first comments regarding the fires. So what happened between August 10th and and today, or really yesterday, when he makes that horrible statement, which is going to haunt him? And why are the people of Maui saying, where was this, the assistance? The wokeness of the administrator and some other things now come into play. I'm Tony Katz.